0: I'm Tom Rosnowski. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. My guest today is Jim Madison, who has completed an essential work here on the history of Indiana, entitled Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana. It is, I think it would be unfair to say, a sequel, uh, let's just say a second chapter to his initial work, The Indiana Way, which was published almost 30 years ago in 1986. Jim, welcome to Profiles. Good to be here, Tom. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about your journey to Indiana in the course of your life. Uh, I understand you weren't born in Indiana.
1: I was not. Like the old comedian Herb Schreiner, who used to say, I moved here as soon as I heard about it. I'm (laughs) I'm an immigrant. Uh, But I've been here a long time. Um, I came in 1966 uh, to be a student at IU, actually. And like a lot of folks who came to Indiana University, to Bloomington, it proved hard to leave. And uh, I'm a Hoosier now.
0: You know, it's interesting. Another uh, writer who's very closely associated with Indiana, Scott Russell Sanders, is also a transplant. Yes. And I talked to Scott once about... The process that he had, where initially, of course, like you, he discovered Bloomington. He came here for the university, and then, after that, began to get inculcated into the history of the state, the culture of the state, and fell in love. Yes. Would you talk about that discovery process? Well, for I you? have I
1: have great respect for Scott's writings. We're friends, and um, I, I love uh, his arguments about place about having a place to love, a place to know, a place that frustrates you sometimes. We share those those views, I think, about Indiana. But I think probably like Scott, Indiana does not overwhelm one initially. You can't go to the beach and hike the mountains. It's a little more subtle than that and maybe a little more real or a little more moving. Once you begin to appreciate what's here. And that requires that you get out. And for those of us who live in Bloomington, especially, we need to get off the island, which is what I think Bloomington is in so many ways, and move out into the state, Uh, to the state parks, for starters. That's a good place to begin to discover aspects of Indiana. But to the towns. I love the old courthouse towns, some of them in not such good shape these days, but centers of civic life, Uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I love Indianapolis. Indianapolis is an underrated city in so many ways. Uh, There are things to do and see in Indianapolis that help you to understand this state. One of the things about Indiana that
0: you mention in your book, just in terms of the early years of development here and, and statehood, is the fact that in many ways, Indiana's growth and development in terms of its economy, in terms of its culture, in terms of the people relating to their place mirrored what was going on in the United States. The shift from the rural to the urban was pretty concurrent with what was going on in the United States at large. And I wonder if you could speak to that directly, just in terms of how Indiana Reflects the American experience. Yeah,
1: well, uh, that's that's an interesting dialogue, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Indiana has claimed by the end of the nineteenth century, Hoosiers claimed it was the most American of states, and in many ways, it is a typically American state. And we can talk about that. We can I write about that. But in other ways, and this is the kind of uh, contradictions and and, um, confusions that I actually enjoy thinking about when it comes to the past and the present, in other ways, Indiana stands out. It's different. It's different even from its neighbors, Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky, and it's surely different from New York or California or Texas. And so there's there's a contradiction there. Yes, the most American state in some ways, certainly 100 years ago, maybe less so now, but also a very distinctive state with its own identity, its own special history.
0: Let's go back to the beginning of Indiana's settlement by Europeans and Americans. This is somewhat of a challenge, I think, for contemporary historians especially, because there's a perspective perhaps that didn't exist a century ago in terms of the damage that we might have caused, and using the inclusive we as, as Europeans and Americans, to the natural world and the Native Americans who lived here. Understanding at the same time that so much of that development and that initiative by settlers created where we live now and what we benefit from in terms of our living environment. So there's there's a certain contradiction, a balance there to be achieved, and and I'm sure it's
1: especially difficult for a historian. Well, it is a contradiction, and it's an unsettling one in some ways when you start to think about it. And I've thought about that more from a 21st century perspective. Those questions that you're asking about the 18th and 19th centuries become even more important. And I've written about them a lot more in this new book. That is, uh, let's just take the pioneers who are deeply venerated in traditional accounts of Indiana. And there are a lot of good things to say about Hoosier pioneers. But one of the main things they wanted to do was destroy the environment, to put it in our terms, and in particular, to cut down the trees. Trees were in the way of progress. The wood from trees were essential for log cabins and utensils and fire and all sorts of things. But most of the trees, and Indiana was heavily forested, millions of trees covering most of the state, certainly southern Indiana, The trees were in the way of progress, and the great tool of the pioneer was less the rifle than the axe. That picture of Abe Lincoln holding an axe is is iconic. He learned to use an axe when he was eight or nine years old. He seldom did not have an axe in his hand, and he was cutting down trees. So in the 20th century, we have a very different view of trees and the broader environment, and we start to reforest. We start to plant. We start to preserve. We set aside conservation areas. One of the great things about our celebration of our bicentennial in 2016, when Indiana will be 200 years old, is the already formed Bicentennial Nature Trust, which is well along in setting aside land, preserving it, and protecting it for all time.
0: I know just from uh, my discussions with Scott that at at one point – I'm going to try to get these numbers right – that of the 22 million acres that constituted Indiana, if you outlined the state at that time at the beginning of the 19th century in 1800, 20 million of those 22 million acres were forested and you know, some prairie lands, perhaps in the northern part right. of, of the state. And over the course of one century, up to 1900, 18 million of those were cleared. And what you just mentioned referenced, I, I think, is a, is a very interesting redressing of damages, in a sense, because we already have a, a park system, natural forest system, that is the envy of many states. But could you talk a little bit more about the initiative, the Bicentennial Commission to address the natural world as part of the legacy going
1: forward? Well, I think all of these changes, uh, including the Bicentennial preparations, are acknowledgement of the changing world in which we live. That was already on the table by 1916 when Indiana celebrated its 100th birthday And some people know this, most probably don't. One of the most important achievements of the centennial celebration was the creation of the state parks. Our state park system came out of our 100th birthday celebration. That was a great achievement that becomes even more notable as a century passes. Indiana created one of the finest state park systems in the country and still has today one of the finest state park systems in the country. When folks talk about Hoosier Pride, I don't usually talk about Hoosier Pride. That's not quite the way I think about things. But if you want to talk about Hoosier Pride, one place to start is the state parks. So there's that legacy, there's that tradition of conservation. Even as we continue in many ways to disrupt the natural environment in ways that are negative rather than positive, there is that tradition which grows stronger and stronger and is expressed in the Bicentennial Nature Trust uh, and in other celebrations that will be coming by 2016. Beyond the
0: forested areas, I know just from my experience in Terre Haute that a lot of communities along the Wabash River, for instance, are rediscovering that river. And I, I say to people very often next to the Mississippi, I don't think that there has been an American river that has been sung about and written about as much as the Wabash. And it's interesting that uh, now it, it basically uh, the relationship of settlers to that uh, river is about 200 years old, a little more than 200 years old. So yeah. the question really of rediscovering something that has been there all along and redefining a relationship
1: with yes. it. Yes,
0: yes. And that's part of the larger
1: initiative we're making to embrace the natural world in a new way. Yes. And the Wabash, as as you're suggesting, Tom, was really important in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century for people moving. It was the interstate highway. It was the transportation, the key central transportation route in Indiana for Native Americans, for French fur traders, for the British, and then for the Americans. The Wabash is the critical route for trade, for military action, and so lots of folks are going up and down the Wabash doing all sorts of things 100 and 200 years ago. That changes, of course, as we move away from river transportation and as newly developing towns and cities begin to dump everything they don't want into the Wabash and into the White and into the other rivers. And so those rivers, by the early 20th century, are terribly polluted. And you can't fish and you can't drink and on it. Well, people do drink out of them, but but they're terribly polluted. In the last three decades or so, we've discovered those rivers. We've rediscovered them. And they're much cleaner now than they were 50 years ago. There's recreational and other facilities developing along our rivers. And I think they're a wonderful asset in Indiana. One of my regrets is when you cross the Wabash on the interstate highways or other rivers on the interstate highways, sometimes there's a sign there telling you, but you usually can't even see the river. You have to stretch. You have to slow down, which I do because when I cross the Wabash, I want to see that river. I wish it were easier For travelers across the state to see our rivers and to know our rivers. The best way to know them, of course, is to get in a canoe and canoe down them, not up them. That's a little hard, but canoe down (laughs) them.
0: (laughs) This leads to a portion of your book. You talk about the Hoosier School of Literature. And you attribute the Hoosier School of Literature, which started to emerge in the second half of the 19th century and carried all the way, I think, probably through most of the first half of the 20th century, in terms of its prominence. You mentioned in the book that outside of New York State, no state in the Union had more best-selling authors at the turn of the 20th century than Indiana did. And I've always thought that there's a, a, a connectivity between so many of the authors that came from Indiana, even authors as disparate as uh, Theodore Dreiser and James Whitcomb Riley in a sense that you mentioned this too, creation of a Hoosier culture. And and uh, it, it just seems that from some of the most seminal works that exist from that canon, that there are a number of references to the natural world, and starting with the early poetry of Riley mm. and going in through Tarkington And how it transitions to an urban society uh, with the work Tarkenton, Magnificent, Ambersons, and of course, Dreiser with Sister Carrie. And it almost seems as different as these individuals were, as different as their perspectives and maybe their philosophies were. They were dealing with a transition that they were witnessing firsthand, either growing up or as adults. And this carried through almost a century of productivity. And I wonder if you could talk about – you mentioned in the book the idea that this Hoosier school of literature, in a sense,
1: illuminated the Hoosier culture and may have developed it in some ways. I think it did uh, illuminate and develop. But this is the late 19th century when Hoosiers and other Americans, especially in the Midwest, were building these massive factories. The Midwest, uh, the states of Indiana and its immediate neighbors – by the end of the 19th century, was the best, most productive industrial economy in the world. There was no other place like it in the world. And it's expressed in these factories with their massive smokestacks and the smoke roaring out and the cities that are growing up uh, in the midst of these factories. So this is the age of industrialization, of urbanization, as the textbook calls it, of radical change, really, in so many ways. Or at least people at the time, including Booth Tarkington, thought... They were living in a period of radical change, the most changing time in the world ever, Tarkington said. And so what are they doing? Well, they're developing a sense of place, of where they are. They're very keen on a sense of place. And some of them, Riley, Tarkington in particular, are keen on the Hoosier identity. Who are these people? and that we are part of. Where is their place in America and in the world? And so they do write about place. They write about place with great affection, but sometimes, and Riley especially is of this sort, they're looking back in a nostalgic, romantic way to the times before industrialization. They're celebrating an Indiana that is actually passing the click of the mowing in the field and on and on and on. These these golden age writers and the artists like TC Steele are very interesting in how they reflect Indiana and how they help Hoosiers develop a sense of place a sense of attachment to the state. I might add Tom that I think I think some of them are still very well represented in in the canon and ought to be read. uh, Booth Tarkington, above all. I think The Magnificent Ambersons is a wonderful book. I signed that in class again and again. And and the students at first were uncertain. Uh, It's a little more subtle than some of the literature they might read in the 21st century, but they actually, most of them, enjoyed reading The Magnificent Ambersons. I think Gene Porter Stratton, too, and, and Limberlost and,
0: yes. talks about uh, – she's talking about uh, drilling for oil mm-hmm. at some points in that novel. Yeah. And and there, there just seems to be – we talk of Indiana very often as being the crossroads of America. And as you pointed out, this rapid industrialization, this very sophisticated industrialization going on in a relatively short period in – Indiana's history was alongside one of the most productive agricultural economies in the nation. And uh, you'd mentioned that outside of the fact that there are a number of natural resources to be had, coal, limestone, for instance, that are intrinsic to Indiana's topography, there's also the fact that the soil is very rich, and and really lends itself to a diversity of agriculture. Another thing that we've kind of gotten away from as everything's gone to corn and soybeans Mm. over the past generation. This must have been a very exciting period. You line it out, I I think, in the book as, as the period from 1850 to 1920 as being the golden age of Indiana. Could you talk a little bit about what was going on then culturally economically that caused all of these artists you're talking about whether
1: visual artists writers so forth to bear witness and to be inspired yeah well let me go back to agriculture tom because i think it sometimes gets lost in our 21st century view of the world we forget about what we're eating <laughs> yeah. maybe a little less so in recent years but indiana is doubly blessed In the late 19th century, this industrial growth that we've talked about, but also agricultural growth and productivity. There's no question but that when you move north of Indianapolis onto that flat, rich soil, you are on the most fertile soil in the whole world. It is a place to grow corn. And the first Hoosiers, the first Native Americans, figured that out very quickly. And everyone who's lived there from the beginning. To the present grows corn and then some other things as well. Mixed earlier on, now soybeans as well as corn. But there's no place in the world better suited for the growth of corn and soybeans than central Indiana. It's part of the breadbasket. It's part of the corn belt. So if you want to make an argument that God's a Hoosier, you, you, <laughs> you look at those, uh, those cornfields and, and those factories in 1900 that are producing better than any other place in the world. Now, there's a lot of other things that people can take pride in by the end of the 19th century. Indiana had made progress in developing a system of public schools, for example, in developing a system of public health. By the beginning of the 20th century, Indiana had one of the finest public health systems in the country, focusing on babies, on care of newborns and infants, of educating mothers, and on and on and on. So there's a lot to be proud of by the beginning of the 20th century, for Hoosiers. There are, of course, always other sides to the coin. And there are a lot of things in Indiana by 1900 that today I would not be proud of, and I think most Hoosiers would not be proud of. Race, for example, one of Indiana's more difficult, maybe the most difficult subject for Hoosiers, the fact that there have been African-American Hoosiers from the beginning. Do you think it's been addressed sufficiently? in terms of the dialogue
0: around our, our legacy with race here? Oh,
1: absolutely not. I don't think we've ever, as Americans, talked enough about race. I, I, um, I have a special interest in, in African-American history. I've written about it in other books, and I write about it a lot in this book because I think it is so important because I think we don't know enough and we don't talk enough. What upsets me most these days is when someone talks about a post-racial society, in which presumably there's a level playing field, in which presumably the color of skin no longer matters. I just think that's so untrue and so ahistorical and so uninformed. You make a reference in the book, and I thought it
0: was really fascinating because my work with Tara Haute, of course, revealed the presence of the Klan in the 1920s. And they actually had a dedicated clubhouse, if you will, clan park that surrounded it an address that was known to everyone they took regular parades down main street and so forth and one of the references that you make in the book that i think is fascinating is the fact that this history was such an inconvenient truth for many families many individuals that it was almost completely erased and in hamilton county i think you mentioned about 10 20 years ago a membership log of the local Klan chapter was discovered in an attic and brought to light. I wonder if you could talk about the challenges of living history and understanding it at the same time. I'm sure that's a real fascination for you, especially since some of the book is devoted to the last 30 years since you wrote The Indiana Way So in a sense, you're living history while you're trying to understand it and analyze it in terms of the larger impact it has.
1: Yeah, sure. There's a lot there. Can we just talk about the Klan just a little bit? Oh, sure. People always want to know about the Klan, and, and there's still people around who say, well, isn't Indiana a Klan state? The answer to that is no. It's not in the 21st century. Uh, the Klan does not exist in any significant way in Indiana and hasn't for a long, long time, many decades. But the Klan did exist in the 1920s. I write a whole chapter on the Klan in the 1920s where it was very active in Terre Haute, as you know, in Bloomington and all across Indiana. That Klan, however, is far more complex and more interesting than most people who haven't studied Indiana history I have a sense of. It was not really very, those Klan people were not really interested in race. They considered African Americans inferior and second class citizens, no question about that. But the main concern of the Klan in Indiana in the 1920s were Catholics. That's a very difficult thing to explain, and we probably don't have time to get started here, but it was Catholics and immigrants who so upset the Klan, as well as bootleggers and and folks who were going out to roadhouses and dancing and drinking and, and enjoying this new music represented by radical people such as Hoagy Carmichael, <laughs> who upset adults in the 1920s. Hard to imagine, but but true. So the Klan in the 20s is not does not fit the stereotypes. It's very important. Uh, it can be, and it was, provincial and narrow and uh, offensive, but it did not go around lynching blacks. The Klan in Indiana in the 1920s lynched no African-American, not one. I've never seen evidence of it. I'd be happy to look at evidence if anyone has it, but zero is the total number of blacks lynched by the Klan. So the Klan, however, as you suggest, leaves a horrible spot on the page of Indiana history. And Hoosiers don't know what to do with it. And the tendency when something is so discomforting, when it upsets our notions of what we want the past to be, is to sweep it under the rug, to pretend it does not exist, which is what Indiana did for a long, long time. Certainly there's the personal and...
0: Perhaps uh, the academic or the scholarly, when 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 you're looking at the fact that maybe great grandfather uh, was a member of the Klan, sure, and it, you have that as part of your personal history, that you prefer that it wasn't, yeah. and and at the same time, you're you're looking at the larger scope of things and and, and the impact. You make that point in the in the book that the Klan in Indiana, when they really started to emerge in the nineteen twenties, was in many ways the the promotion of one man, D.C. Stevenson, and then also very
1: localized.
0: You had all these local chapters much like you would for a fraternal society.
1: Yeah, I think even more importantly localized than the promotion of Stevenson. He gets a lot of credit. I think actually too much credit because the Klan in Indiana, again, was a grassroots organization. Lots and lots of ordinary white Protestant Hoosiers believed that this was a reform movement to preserve the best of America, to preserve their notion of Christianity. Lots of Methodists and Baptist ministers joined the Klan. Bankers and lawyers and Rotary Club members joined the Klan. This does not square with the stereotypes of this organization, but we now have a lot of scholarship in the last 30 years, lots of books and articles on the Klan. We know a lot more than we did 30 years ago, and we know what kind of organization it was that contradicts the stereotypes.
0: One of the things that's very interesting to me about history is is how close – major change. Uh, We think of really change that defines uh, eras and epochs. I'm wondering about how close it came in many cases. You mentioned two administrations, governmental uh, governors who had great sympathies with the Klan. Mm. And in the 1920s, I think it was 1926, where the Klan really felt that they were in a position to influence legislation in a big way because they had so much sympathy in the legislature and in the governor's office. And that
1: that's a close call, isn't it? Sometimes it, it comes down to a few votes. Yeah, it, it could have gone differently. But we're blessed here that there were, even at the height of the Klan's power, in state government and across the state, in churches and rotary clubs and organizations, even at the height, there were always people who opposed the Klan. There were people who had the courage to stand up against the Klan to say, wait, this is not right. This is not the America. This is not the Indiana that I believe in. There were some newspaper editors. There were some lawyers. There were some Jewish and Catholic leaders and just ordinary folks who said no. So there was always opposition. And there was sufficient time for that opposition to develop and to grow and to prevent the legislation that the Klan proposed in the 1925 General Assembly. They got none of their program passed. Uh, we're blessed that D.C. Stevenson was stupid and evil and and committed uh, what he was eventually convicted of second-degree murder. So that removed him uh, and left the Klan with a very, very bad odor.
0: As you fill in the gap between the Indiana Way in 1986 and this book, Hoosiers, in 2014. When you're looking at the history that's taken place since and and a lot of changes for Indiana, and you're trying to assess it through the lens that you have always uh, looked at history through, Tell me about your process there. You're living it every day. Uh, You have that personal perspective, those personal attachments. And you're also trying to get a a certain detachment
1: so that you can analyze, so that you can understand. It's much harder to write about the past you've lived, much more difficult. Um, When I sat down four or five years ago and thought I might write a new history of Indiana, I wasn't at all sure I wanted to do it. I did know that the Indiana Way was outdated in so many ways. It was outdated, but including the fact that it ended in the early 1980s, and a lot had happened since. And so I decided when I sat down to write a new book, to think about writing a new book, that I would write the last chapters first. What are now the last three chapters in this book, Hoosiers? I wrote those drafts of those four or five years ago. And uh, I thought if I couldn't do those, there's no reason to try a new book. I wasn't real pleased with them. I'm still not fully pleased with them. But I forced myself to write them because I believe that history must go up to the recent past, to our own times, to the 21st century. And there are times in those chapters where I'm sure I'm wrong and someone will correct me. Uh, Maybe the perspective is even wrong. Uh, But later generations will correct me. Even today, people will probably correct me. But I think it was important to write those chapters that deal with the 1980s, the 1990s, that deal with Governor Mitch Daniels, that deal to some degree with the social issues, the hot-button social issues, uh, with the economic changes, the coming of Japanese factories, and the globalization, and on and on and on. So I write about these things with some trepidation. But with uh, maybe the benefits of age and experience, I just sort of closed my eyes and went ahead and did it. Place I long to see. Back in Indiana, I will find all the folks so dear to me. How I'd love to see that lazy river stop and give her.
0: I'm Tom Rosnowski. My guest today is Jim Madison, who has completed an essential work here on the history of Indiana. I wanted to ask you about that perspective that you just mentioned. Uh, we were talking about how your perspective has grown and evolved in this past 30 years as you look at, at Indiana. I was wondering if your perspective on the past, the past you wrote about in the Indiana
1: Way, has changed any in those 30 years. I, I think it has. Maybe much of it's subtle, maybe not. I'm probably not the best judge of that. But I do think there's, historians have an advantage. You know, scientists, some people say scientists and mathematicians are finished by the time they're 30 or 40. I don't know that that's true. But, but historians, if they're doing the right things, get better and better with age. We, we accumulate, we learn, and we develop our own experiences. I've had lots of chances to really travel Indiana in the last 30 years, to be with people. I'm on several boards and commissions where I'm with some very smart, interesting people who educate me. And most important, I've been in the classroom. I've spent 40 years in the classroom teaching a History of Indiana class almost every year And the students in that class have been wonderful teachers for me. They bring questions. They bring perspectives. They bring new ideas. And it just enriched deeply my own understanding of Indiana history. Let's talk about those travels a little bit. One of the great things about
0: travel, in your local environment especially, is with the perspective that you have with regard to history. Just to pull up an example, how much small towns have changed their composition their purpose their impact on daily life what are the changes that you have noticed based on your awareness of history uh, what indiana was like say at the turn of the 20th century and the way it is
1: now and how does that inform your hopes for where indiana is going that's a very important issue tom one that deeply concerns me Um, I write about this in, in, at the beginning of the 20th century when these small towns or medium-sized towns and best represented by the county courthouse towns like Bloomington and Bedford, Paoli in southern Indiana. These were the centers of the county, the centers of the community, and they played very important roles in the whole county and in the state. They were Indiana. Indiana in, in uh, 1900 had no big cities. Indianapolis was a sizable city, but it still behaved, and Meredith Nicholson and others wrote about this, like a small town. So Indiana had no Chicago, no New York, no San Francisco. It was a state of small towns. That has changed, especially in the last 30 or 40 years. It's not just Indianapolis, but central Indiana, the ring counties around Marion County that have grown, led by Hamilton County, one of the wealthiest counties in America. Those ring counties are now very dominant. And I posit in this book the possibility that we are moving toward two Indianas the ring counties around Indianapolis, including Indianapolis, a few islands like Bloomington and Wabash of Syracuse, a few other places, and then most of the state, small towns that have been atrophying, that have been struggling. Not all of them, there are always exceptions, but a lot of them. It's a little bit like where we are in the nation as a whole, with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And I have some concerns, and I think anyone who's paying attention to Indiana ought to have concerns about what this means for our future, if we are in fact moving toward two Indianas.
0: When we we talk about the integrity of these small towns, you go to so many of these small towns and the courthouse squares that you're talking about, you see a lot of vacant space very often in the smaller towns. Some of them obviously a, an initiative from residents to make it more relevant in this century to to not only create businesses that people are going to want to come to on weekends or whatever destinations but also create an environment where individuals were looking for a place to settle after the children leave home or or in perhaps the most elevated of circumstances, somebody starting their careers and finding employment purpose in these small towns. And what I was reading in the book is these towns in, from, say, the last quarter of the 19th century through to maybe 1950 were self-contained. They they had lawyers, they had doctors, they had professionals, they had individuals who were in business, they had industries and so forth. And just in terms of the richness that not only brought to the economy and the people who lived in them, but the culture, the Hoosier culture, that mm-hmm. identity,
1: um, do you see a way of repurposing, re-energizing these small towns? Well, there are a lot of people thinking about that today and there ought to be even more thinking about that because that I think is one of the central questions on the table for Indiana in the 21st century. Some of these towns have gone so far down that maybe they can't go any further down and things are going to get a little better in one way or another. There's this old economic notion of creative destruction and I've used that to kind of frame some of the economic and social changes of the last few decades We have signs of of it happening, however. Uh, One of the best is Kokomo, which suffered terribly, as did the other auto industry towns for 30 years, actually, up and down. And then when the Great Recession hit in 2008, those auto towns, Marion, Newcastle, uh, and others, South Bend, uh, really struggled. Anderson, which once employed 20,000 General Motors workers, now has zero, none. Mm -hmm. Vacant lots where massive General Motors factories stood in the 1950s and 60s. Kokomo struggled. Kokomo benefited by having the Chrysler bailout, which some in Indiana opposed very wrongly, I think. But more importantly, Kokomo found some leadership, found some citizen involvement, and has begun a process of developing itself uh, in a variety of economic ways, but also culturally, of, of spiffing up the town and of making it a place where people want to stay, where children want to stay. Uh, so it can happen in Kokomo. It can happen in other towns and small and large across the state, but it takes some work, some energy and some money. One
0: reality, of course, with regard to our consumer culture right now is is the uh ubiquitous nature of chain stores and franchises. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the statement is made many times, you, you really can't tell the outskirts of Des Moines, Iowa from the outskirts of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It, it, it's all the same, the same franchises and so forth, usually on the outskirts of town, the high trafficked areas. And we've been talking about balances throughout our entire conversation the rural and the urban and so forth. And I'm just wondering, as these towns in, in your mind start to repurpose, is there an opportunity for them to apply as towns, as small
1: cities, their own signature to their development? Absolutely. I think they have to. I think they have to find their own particular niche, their own particular identity. And, and frankly, they're going to have to market that in some way to convince others that this place has a special quality, a special purpose. I want to go back to the premise you laid out there, which is, is perhaps a, an indication of globalization. And we all know that globalization is a reality. It's probably not going to go away. It is what it is. So how do we deal with it? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that there are ways to find a place outside the globalization stuff, outside the chain stores, the big box retailers. uh, There are ways to make your own place in your own space, even when it comes to food. I don't have any big beef against agribusiness, as it's called. I think it has success in feeding millions and millions of people. But I also have an affection for local food, uh, for the kind of food that's grown by small farmers, uh, for the kind of food that's sold in certain kinds of grocery stores and retail outlets and farmer's market. There's a wonderful book called Food for Thought that Indiana Humanities published a couple of years ago that goes across the state of Indiana and shows the different varieties of agriculture, the big, big, big farms on cent- in central Indiana, but also the small farmers. Indiana grows 40 percent of the ducks served in restaurants there are restaurants in san (laughs) francisco that list their duck dish as indiana duck because it's special well i like that in a world Mm -hmm. of globalization of flatness it's not flat and it's not globalized and there are places and ways that we can and i think must resist some of the negative aspects of all of that one of the values that you have, and, and you express
0: it so well in all of your books, I don't think it's always common to every historian, but I have really noticed it in your writing, is how much you treasure diversity. And, mm. and whether it, it, it's ethnic diversity or economic diversity, really having inclusion and how that adds to the richness of a culture and the stability of a society going forward. And sometimes that there are bumps in the road in terms of accepting inclusion, opening the door a little bit wider. But in the end, as time goes on, it increases the substance of a culture to be diverse. And what you were just mentioning there with regard to that balance between mega agriculture and small farmers who are creating uh, varieties of fruit, for instance, that we haven't had in generations. And in a sense, applying an Indiana signature to all of this. uh, So much of your work has been a curiosity about what we would call an Indiana culture.
1: Do you think that exists? What significance does it have in a global society? Well, I think there is an Indiana culture because people think there's an Indiana culture. People identify as Hoosiers. They may have slightly different views of what that means, but they self-identify as Hoosiers, more so with Indiana than in most other states. It's one of, it's one of the great blessings we have that people who live here, most of them, many of them, think of themselves as Hoosiers. So there is an identity. There is a kind of culture. And it gets very ethereal. I write a little bit about this in the book. It can, it can get very ethereal and very foggy. But it's there, and it's important. But going back to your first part of that question, Tom, I think I like as much those groups, individuals, events that go against the grain— that contradict what people think of as a Hoosier. One reason I write a lot about African-Americans is because I insist that African-Americans who live in Indiana are Hoosiers. You don't have to be white to be a Hoosier. There are lots of African-American pioneers chopping down trees and building log cabins and growing corn and raising hogs, just like white pioneers. So that, that kind of diversity... That kind of contradiction to the central tendencies is something I very much like. I'm very keen on, for example, New Harmony, Indiana, oh, one of the yeah. greatest places in America, I worth, think so. A, so, too. worth a weekend trip because of the, what it represents. Some would say wacky, crazy people, you know, believing in celibacy and communal property and goodness knows what else. When just up the river is Abe Lincoln at the same time, Abe Lincoln growing up as a boy swinging his axe and trying to learn how to read and write when there were no public schools. New Harmony had schools, had education, had a band, had had an opera house. At the same exact same time. I love wow. those contradictions, those diversities, those differences. In, in close proximity to each other. There's yeah. certain yeah. resonance yeah. Yeah. Exactly. you think.
0: It, it, it's impossible to measure, of course, and, and difficult to really even write about. But I've always felt we we talked in the early part of our conversation here about a sense of place and how much resonance that has. And uh, I know just from my own background with regard to music, um, the proximity of black and white music in Mississippi along the Delta Blues and then Jimmy Rogers – absorbing some of the blues and being called the father of country music in many ways.
1: And these were just within 20 miles of each mm-hmm. other. Completely well, it happens, different. It happens here in Indiana. Hookie Carmichael writes in his autobiography. He learned a lot about music going to Indianapolis right. and hanging out with African-American musicians. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: and and that resonance that you're talking about, Abe Lincoln with Inhaling Distance of New Harmony, uh, It, I've always thought that there is a certain resonance that is created when uh, people assemble in community and have an intention, a purpose that sort of spreads beyond the borders of the community and influences other people. Now, they may not take in that experience completely themselves and reflect it, but they're taking that energy in yes. and using it for their own initiative. Sure, sure. And that's, that's part of community, Do you think that's some of the magic? And I know that's an inexact term, but I'm thinking maybe that might be what you were referring to in the book from 1850 to 1920, a a great deal of energy, whether it was coming from the agricultural section or the literature or the self-contained small towns that had their own spirit, their own particular connection just radiating out and all of these various segments of society feeding off each other.
1: Well, I suspect so. And even even into the economy. This was this was the period in which Indiana was was blessed with hundreds of mostly young men who tinkered in the backyard mm. and in their workshops. And by the ni- 1890s they're starting to make horseless carriages. The best example is Elwood Haynes in Kokomo, who has a major auto manufacturing business going, builds one of the – a car that goes from from Kokomo to – drives from Kokomo to Brooklyn, New York, perhaps the longest distance driven by an automobile at the beginning of the 20th century. But these tinkerers, these entrepreneurs we would call them today, are part of that culture, part of that zest – that's always been there. It seems a little more focused in the late 19th century, but you can find examples of it at any point in time. In politics, Wendell Willkie, for example, one of my great Hoosier heroes. In academic life, Alfred Kinsey, another hero of mine, and on and on and on. You can always find in any era Hoosiers with that kind of zest, that kind of quest, that kind of interest in moving outside of the mainstream, moving to the edges, pushing the barriers, And I think that's exceedingly important.
0: There's something that that, that really catches my interest, this idea of the mainstream as we become a globalized society, a much more interconnected society. And uh, the possibility that the mainstream, in a sense, becomes so inclusive in terms of even picking up the idiosyncrasies of culture that... To go against it, to actually be countercultural, is almost impossible now. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, that's, uh, that's way beyond my pay scale. That's a, that's a fascinating thing to think about, and I don't really know the answer. The mainstream seems to be more, uh, more foggy sometimes, uh, more ethereal sometimes. It seems to be all over the place, particularly when we go to digital versions of it. But at the same time, there's still a pressure, and maybe it's a large pressure to conform to whatever and whoever is judging the mainstream to be. One of the trite things to say is to march to your own drummer. And a lot of my heroes march to their own drummer. My great hero is Abe Lincoln. I always say Abe Lincoln was the greatest Hoosier of all time. We should not let Illinois claim him. He grew up in Indiana. (laughs) And Abe Lincoln marched to his own drum in a brilliant way. In a sense, this balance we
0: talk about, uh, we've talked about it through this entire conversation, and, and, and really, if you're moving forward, maybe the best stability you can have to take that step forward is to have your weight evenly balanced. And the fact that Abe Lincoln worked within a structure, took on enormous responsibility over the course of his life from events that were going on in the present and responding to those, but also in some ways had this outside perspective that he could see the present from a distance, from a remove, that allowed him
1: to be a very effective leader. I think that's exactly right. He understood the culture, the times in which he lived, Uh, One of the great things about Abe Lincoln was that he read and read and read and read. And I'm a believer in reading, in the power of words, whatever format you read. Abe Lincoln was a reader all his life. So he was very smart and very knowledgeable. But he had the ability to step out of the present and especially to think about the long term and the larger context, you only need to look at his, his second inaugural address or the Gettysburg address or any of his writings, really, of consequence and see that quality of this man.
0: One of the things I want to touch on, and this is so difficult subjectively, I think, for historians, is to determine as you are analyzing, as you are bearing witness... To a couple centuries of growth and change. What are the elements that you personally feel should be retained, should be nurtured perhaps a little more than we're doing presently? Resources from the past, perspectives from the past. We talked about uh, the food culture, for instance, and, and bringing that back to something that in some ways is more localized and maybe more diverse than Indiana agriculture has been for maybe the last generation. And when you're looking at it from your perspective as a scholar, the vast amount of knowledge you have over these past two centuries in Indiana's growth, are there things that that you think we need to pay attention to because these resources are endangered? they have the potential of slipping away from us, and we
1: will be poorer for it if that happens. Well, I think we have to start with our own history. And I'm a little biased on that subject. In fact, I'm exceedingly biased. But I have no idea how you can begin to understand the present if you do not know the past. It's such a no-brainer to me that I don't understand it at all. And, and Indiana's history is a history that is deep within our present We're not completely path-dependent, but our choices are limited and affected by what happened before, by choices made by generations, even 200 years before ours. So one of the things we have to preserve and have to have all around us is some sense of our past, maybe from reading books like mine, but from museums and, and visits to historic sites like New Harmony and on and on and on. So we need that sense of connection to generations before ours, in order to connect to generations coming after ours because we do have obligations and responsibilities beyond our own nose uh, there's a certain notion that sometimes we're so self-centered and so selfish that we think only about the immediate present and ourselves and i think that's the sign of a of a barbaric culture <laughs> and a civilized culture <laughs> so history is one very essential thing to preserve and the other is education i'm i'm just flabbergasted sometimes by the mistreatment of education, by the inadequate way in which we address the issues in our schools from K through 12 to our universities. And there is nothing more important to our future than an educated people, educated in terms of the 21st century. We're doing okay, but we're sure not doing great in Indiana or in America. So that leads to an essential question. You mentioned... uh you had come to
0: Indiana initially as a student, 1966. Yes. So you're pro- approaching your 50-year anniversary <laughs> yes. as a Hoosier. And I wanted to ask you about the role that you think great universities play, both with their students and with the general public, in terms of being an example, illuminating that challenge of, of bringing history perspective, knowledge
1: to a place, which is Indiana University's role. Well, the role of great university like Indiana, uh, the consequences are incalculable. The problem with education is that you really can't measure the important things. There are lots of folks out there who want to measure, who want to test and have numbers and rankings and all that sort of thing. And maybe there's some value in that, but the truly important things you can't measure. And I, that's one of the things I've learned over the years, because I now bump into alumni who were in my classes uh, 40 years ago, or even 20 years ago, and we sometimes have very interesting conversations about what they learned and what IU meant to them. There you can measure, to some degree, by talking to someone who's been in the world and experiencing the benefits of education. So it's very hard to measure, but there's no question of the essential, necessary, massive role that great universities play in our past, our present, and our future. And the fact that there's some jeopardy in aspects of our great universities is something that deeply concerns me. This book, I I just want to say personally, it's been a pleasure
0: to read it. And uh, as much as I feel everybody should know the words to
1: back home again in Indiana <laughs> so they can sing it
0: just like the national when anthem. We, when I was
1: traveling with our kids, we used to, when we crossed the border back into Indiana, I used to make them sing that song. <laughs> go, oh, That's Dad. great.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I think uh, relationship to local culture, uh, whether it's uh, Indiana, the culture of your immediate
1: residential environment, I think it's absolutely essential for a quality of life. It is, and it's not an either-or situation. You can be a deeply engaged Hoosier and travel the world. Yes. I taught for a year in Japan. I taught for a year in England. I've just come back from France. I like to think of myself in many ways as a citizen of the world, but I'm also a Hoosier. Those are not contradictions. Right. It, in a sense, creates the balance we've
0: been talking about yes. throughout our conversation. Indeed. Jim, as far as the American experience goes, and and we have always prided ourselves as being an inclusive, a diverse nation with contributions from cultures that are not our own, but we are a relatively new nation. And we're talking about the formation of culture. And you use that term freely in the book, a, a Hoosier culture. Mm. in In terms of the identity that it creates for a specific place. Of course, people always point to the characteristics of Texans, let's say, and and what it means to be a Texan. And that's, in a sense, entered uh, the popular lexicon, popular culture in terms of our perceptions. I wanted to ask you about the youth of Indiana in the sense that as a culture, as a concept, It's only 200 years old, which in terms of history, it's an eye blink, really. And where do you think we are right now in terms of of finding our feet, getting our momentum as a culture,
1: as an identity? Well, I think Indiana is a little confused and uncertain right now. There are a lot of things going on, as is America in the world, that uh, trouble us, that concern us, that make us anxious. I would say, however, that that's always been the case. We talked about Booth Tarkington thinking this way in the 19-teens and 20s. There's always been change all around us. It's possible, and I speculate a little bit on this in the last chapters, it's possible that the changes of the last three decades and of where we are now are more significant. Globalization would be one obvious example are more significant than at earlier times, but I tend to doubt that's the case. We'll have to see for the next Indiana historian who comes along and writes about this whether she or he will, will have a better opinion on where we are now than I do.
0: I know you're directly involved in the plans for the celebration of the Bicentennial yes. in uh, 2016.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about that initiative? Well, I've been interested in this for 10 years or so and have tried to push it in various places. One of the reasons I suspect that I got appointed to the Indiana Bicentennial Commission, which is co-chaired by former Congressman Lee Hamilton and former Lieutenant Governor Becky Skillman. And we meet uh, several times each year, quite a few times, and are trying to beat the drums to get communities across the state uh, turned toward 2016 turn toward thinking about, celebrating, but also thinking critically about where they are and where they want to go, which is what to me is the most important opportunity that the bicentennial gives us. One other project I've been working on is a new history of Indiana, not for adults, as Hoosiers is written for adults, but for high school kids. And it's out now, and um, we've got a nice grant for the Lilly Endowment, which is going to enable the book to be sent to high school classrooms across the state to integrate some Indiana subject matter into the American history classes. So that, for example, rather than learning about the Erie Canal in New York, which is what the standard American history textbooks write about, Kids in Indiana schools will have a chance to learn about the Wabash and Erie Canal, about the Wabash River and about the canal that followed that route. And lots and lots of other Indiana stories in this book called Hoosiers and the American Story is the title of this high school book.
0: That's great. And uh, I don't know if it's still true. I know for years there was a mandate
1: for Indiana history to be taught at certain grade levels. It's the fourth grade and only the fourth grade, and that's the purpose of this initiative which is being led by the Indiana Historical Society. It's great that we have Indiana history in the fourth, fourth grade, but it's not really sufficient. By the high school classes, by the time of high school, students we hope can learn a little bit more, a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more useful kinds of historical knowledge hmm Being able to put concepts
0: together instead exactly. of just facts. Exactly. Jim, thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, I'll mention it again because I think anyone within the sound of our voices today needs to read this book, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana, James H. Madison, really an informative read and also something that would be very pleasurable if you still got some porch time for your reading this season. Jim, thank you very much. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Tom. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.